It's time for security now. Get ready, ladies and gentlemen. Steve Gibson's here to answer your questions. We've got answers to you, and I want to remind everybody that if it weren't for our great friends at uh, at New Tech who provide us with that fabulous TriCaster eighty five hundred, I wouldn't be able to do this. Ah! <laughs> The TriCaster 850 is like having our own giant TV truck, a 24-channel system, everything we need to make TV shows, including amazing virtual sets. We don't use those, but, boy, they're fun. Actually, we use them a little bit, the green screen stuff. And uh, we actually take it on the road, too. If you watched our CES production, if you watch NAB show in uh, April, you'll see the 850 Extreme in action. Broadcast, live stream, project, and record HD video all at the same time. If you want a TriCaster, find out more at newtech.com, N-E-W-T-E-K. I should put it up so you can see it. I got it here. Not new egg. No tech. Where is it? I'm on here. Oh, there it is. Find out more at N-E-W. See that? Look at that. I couldn't do that without the TriCaster. N-E-W-T-E-K.com. <laughs> you love from people you trust this is twit audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new winamp for android featuring wireless sync and one-click itunes import now with free daily music downloads and full-length cd listening parties download it for free at winamp.com slash android Video bandwidth for security now is provided by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 338, recorded February 1st, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 136. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite.com. Automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files. Less than five bucks a month. Try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code security now and get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for security now. Are you ready, ladies and gentlemen, to protect yourself and your loved ones online? Well, here he is, the man who can do it all. Our explainer in chief, Mr. Stephen T. Gibson. I, I know. Do you do you have a middle initial? I don't even know if you do, Steve. M. M. T. Yeah. I was thinking Tiberius, like James I, oh, Tiberius I, yes, of Kirk. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I was just last night. I watched um, the very first Blu-ray cuts of the Next Generation series. They just they they're going to yeah. be re-releasing the Next Generation with completely remastered, not just not just oh, wow. up converting, but they're. They're rematting right. at high resolution all of the special effects. That's what they did and, with oh, the first series. Oh, and, and the star field looks fantastic <laughs> and the ship flying around. So was, anyway, so they sent out a, a teaser Blu-ray that has three episodes. Um, and so one of my – actually, the inner light is the one I watched, which is one of my favorite episodes of all time that, that Jean-Luc did. And uh, so it was fun to see it last night. And, I, uh, I think – I hope it's not heresy to say that that might be my favorite uh, of all the series with Jean. Oh, it's Picard. absolutely. He yeah. was the best captain we had. I mean, oh. no, he wasn't going around betting all the green aliens, but still, <laughs> you, you know, know. Yeah, I mean, look, there, you can't. Kirk was, you know, 
Kirk was Kirk. Kirk and Spock. Yeah. But Data and uh, Jordy and uh, Picard and uh, Number yeah, One. They, and they, 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 These you know, guys they, were great. They were really... They, I think the, the original series that gave us, you know, that the Roddenberry was directly involved in had some classic, really good concepts. Right. But the writing and the execution... It was a little broad. The next generation, I think, was just... But that was the time. It was also of an era, and that was the time. I mean, it was the, you know, I mean... Yeah, uh, and Leo, you know what's sad is we have nothing like that on the air now. There's nothing... For a while, we had Firefly. I have to say, Firefly know? to me was even better. I know that's oh, crazy. it was great. Yeah, it was um, great. But but like this, just like here we are yeah. with all this technology. Doctor and we Who don't have Doctor Who. Space? Yeah, that, mm. I never is that even on still? Oh yeah. Oh okay. It never it never will die. <laughs> uh, I'm not a Doctor Who guy either. Um, nah, it just never got me. I don't know. Uh, I, you know, you know me. I've said this before. Science fiction to me is best when read because, or listened to on Audible because uh, your mind, yeah, and you cannot. I mean, look at Dune. Dune's a great example. Impossible to make a movie out of Dune, Uh, and yet when you read it, it comes to life. I don't think you need a movie. Just my thoughts. I don't know how we got on this, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we are not here to talk sci-fi. If you like sci-fi, tune into our holiday episode a couple of weeks back. But no, this is a question and answer episode, number 136. We've it got, is. Yes. We have um, a little bit of news for the, we- for, for the week, not a ton. So uh, The week and, and the but, weary, yes. The, <laughs> and, uh, oh, but before we start, I have a correction to make to last week's WPS the Troubled Protocol episode. I want to put it right at the top of the show. Um, And I was mindful of Albert Einstein's famous quote, one that I really like. He said, everything should be made as simple as possible, but no simpler. It's kind of his corollary to Occam's razor. Yes. And and I did oversimplify something in a fact, and the reason that was a problem was it changed it in, in in being oversimplified. I... When I was explaining the 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 protocol and the way the you, the the pin and the nonce are hashed and then sent to the other side and then later the nonce is sent, which allows the other side to verify that the sender had the pin. That, that I, I I it was absolutely crucial that I leave out a whole bunch of things which are also being sent because. They're they're not extraneous, but they would have. There's no way I could have done it without yeah. chalkboard and and yeah. diagrams. What you know? I always used to for the screensavers. I always used to have a chalkboard for you. Remember we used to do that? Oh yeah, absolutely. I think I love. We got to figure out a way. The folks at Smartboard approached me in uh, in uh, to CES and said, "If you ever want to use a Smartboard, now that might be a good solution because I think that that would be something you could draw on." And then we'd get a digital version of it that we could put on the screen or something. Yeah, but we're still largely an audio podcast. Yeah, you're I mean, right. I know. No, what a huge, no, you're right. You know, we I mean, the, the, in terms of, you know, people commuting and driving yep. and flying no, you're and right. all that. Yeah. They're, they're can't listening. abandon them. Can't abandon them. So you got to do what you can with Wade's alone. Anyway, what I forgot, well, I, I didn't forget it. I mean, I had to strip it out in order to keep this thing manageable was the very first thing the endpoints do 
is negotiate a private key. Mm. They use a Diffie-Hellman key agreement protocol, which you and I have talked about and described in the past, which is not an authenticating protocol because that's then what they proceed to do with the PIN. But it is a privacy-enforcing protocol, which prevents a passive eavesdropper from being able to obtain the information that I said last week was possible with passive eavesdropping. So it, it, is, the, it is still the case the WPS is not secure against an active attack. That is a man in the middle who's, who's involved. And even the Diffie-Hellman key agreement won't protect against an active attack. But it absolutely will encrypt the dialogue so that somebody just capturing the packet traffic is unable to, as I said last week, get the data, take it home, and and crack the pin offline. That can't happen because the dialogue is protected by by this initial establishment of a a secret key, which doesn't authenticate, but it does it does give them privacy. So I wanted to correct that right off the bat. I made it too simple. <laughs> well, all right. <laughs> Not an error exactly, but an oversimplification. I get it. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Let's, uh, well, I, I've got the questions. I've got one commercial. Why don't you, why don't you launch into the uh, news, and then before we do the questions, we'll get the commercial. Yeah, we'll do that. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I just did want to kind of keep an eye on Chrome. It's continuing to quietly creep forward. Um Google recently fixed four vulnerabilities in Chrome and acknowledged to have fixed an, an additional one several weeks ago. So the current stable version of Chrome of Chrome's uh, of Chrome is now version 16, and it's at 16.0.912.77. And of course, by the time you hear this, that may have changed again. But you know that's the nature of the way Chrome is updating themselves and. You know, they're leading the industry in this sort of just automatically keeping it current approach, which other, as we know, other browser vendors are beginning to look at thinking, you know, that seems like a good idea. So I think we're going to see other people following that before long. But I wanted to ask you, Leo, um, something that I saw that one of Sans editors said uh, John Pescator is vice president at Gartner Inc. And of course, we know them. They've yeah. been a market research firm for years. Uh, he's worked in computer and network security since 78. And in this most recent SANS newsletter, he said, quote, the changes in Google's privacy policy are making it questionable whether I want to continue using the Google search engine and the Chrome browser. At some point, the only way to stop the continual ramping up of access to personal data is to vote by your choice of product. And and I thought, whoa, okay. Uh, I'd love to know I, which product he's going to use because I'll, I'll, I'll move there too. But <laughs> if he's talking about Bing, I think you have exactly a similar situation. So Yeah, and, well, and you really, you know, Google has become one-stop shopping for so many things. I mean, we use it for docs. I, I use it for search. Um, I think there's been a lot of hysteria over this, and I don't see what Google did as changing the data they collect at all okay. or changing their privacy controls. I think what they their privacy controls are superior to anybody's 
with the dashboard. You should take a look at the dashboard. Then you, they're the only company I know of that fully exposes what information they collect about you. So google.com slash dashboard, you can see it all. Uh, and what they've done in, in, is two things. First of all, they've an, announced that they will, con, they will now collate data from all their tools, YouTube, Picasa, Search, etc., into a single database. That was... If they weren't already doing it, it was for technical reasons alone. Remember, many of these Picasso and YouTube example, as examples were acquisitions. Uh, right. But, of course, the point of the acquisition, look, Google's not giving you free video and uh, and free uh, photo editing tools. Free everything. Free everything. Uh, they are monetizing you with advertising. That's the trade. If you think Facebook's not doing that, you're not paying attention. So that's the trade. I think... Uh, they're very clear about what they're collecting, so that that is not changed. Right. And they have, for the first time, and this is the other change, so there's two changes. One, they've unified all the data. They've also, as, a, as part of that, unified their privacy policy. They have, a, I think, a very clear, plain English privacy policy. What I would suggest is people read that privacy policy. If you don't like it, there are ways to use Google and opt out. You can log out of a Google account. You remember that most of what they collect comes from the fact that you're using your Google account across all those right. services. Right. You can delete the Google cookie. And if you're using Safari or Firefox, you can do anonymous browsing. Right. Uh, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that that prevents the saving of a cookie across sessions uh, and uh, of any personal information across sessions. Right. And it will not allow them then to, to aggregate information about your past history. They have no way of doing it because they can't identify right. you. Now... Right. If they were nefarious, they could, as we know, there's, it's possible to create yep. super cookies that uh, yep. are not deletable and are not trackable and so forth. And other kinds of fingerprints, Yeah, they could fingerprint you. And, and we, you know, to some degree, uh, it's a question of do I trust what Google says they're collecting or not? If you do and you read the privacy policy uh, and you're comfortable with it, as I am, it's a, to me, it's exactly what I expected Google to be doing with my information, which is selling it in aggregate to advertisers. Um, then anonymously, anonymously, then yep. I'm fine, uh, and then you're fine. If you don't, you have a number of choices, including leaving Google. But I would challenge you in a two ways. One is where do you go <laughs> to that, replace the functionality? Right. I mean, there are engines, search engines that claim to anonymize you, but they're basically using Google in the same way you would if you were doing private browsing. So I think that's the same. Uh, and then there there are other search engines, but I don't know really what those search engines policies are and finally i would say and i you i'd love to hear your opinion on this it seems to me that we already have somebody who knows far more about what we do online who collects it we know they do and who offers it to the government without notice and that's our internet service provider right uh, and they don't have a privacy policy <laughs> we have no kind of controls over that we don't know what they collect now right. um so uh, I would I would submit that the best attitude towards this is to assume that what you do on the internet is done in public, just as what you do in a mall is done in public or on the street is done in public, and and treat it that way. And that will, uh, no matter what's happening, because you don't know what your ISP is doing, uh, that will kind of protect you. That's my that's just my thought on. It. I've been thinking a lot about it, as you might guess. And I don't want to be an Good. apologist for Google, but I think they did what the right thing, which is be very clear about what they're doing. That's all we ask. Then you can make the yep. choice. Yep. And I guess, so by aggregating everything from across their application spectrum, then there's there's more sort of imp, imp, implicit inter-application knowledge of 
who we are as we move among their applications right. so that that's a little more pervasive. But, you know, we're it's all within the Google umbrella. Well, remember what Facebook's trying to do. I was talking to my son. He's so smart, 17 years old. And uh, uh, he knows that what Facebook's trying to do is replace the Internet. So he said, oh, yeah, they, I don't use email anymore. I use Facebook messaging. <laughs> I don't use instant messaging. And, and, and I said, well, you know they're trying to keep you in Facebook. He says, oh, yeah, I could see that they want to replace everything I do online with uh, Facebook. And and it's only a matter of Facebook has its own currency, you know. So it's only a matter of time before they do shopping. Uh, that currency could well end up being a global currency that has more value than a dollar. Have you seen the the, the projected IPO uh, valuation? Right. Something like $89 billion right. out of the gate. And we know like, perfectly well what face, the reason they're valued that high is because they're doing what Google's doing and then some. And what they really want to do is be the entire Internet. So, okay, I agree. If you don't like it, don't use Google. Don't use Facebook. Maybe don't go online because your Internet service provider, God only knows what they're doing. That's that's the price we pay to go online, right? I mean, am I wrong? Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's, you got it exactly right. It's that you're in public. So if you don't want it, don't use a credit card either, by the way. <laughs> You, you might want to move to Montana, dig a hole in the ground, and get some uh, supplies. Not easy to be off the grid. It is impossible. Yep. And uh, I Thank think Google, Google does a good job of giving you the choices. People say, no, opt out. Well, of course there's an opt out. There's, there's several stages of opting out of Google. Wa j j it's called wander away. You could stop using it. You could log out. I think logging out is a very direct way to opt out. Yep. Yep. Don't log into your Google account. And if you're really worried, use private browsing. And But again, you don't know. I presume not, but you never know whether they're using some other form of fingerprinting. Yeah. Well, and get, I mean, we have to assume that they're going to they're really going to play straight after all exactly. the trouble they got into just by by over collecting data from their Wi-Fi roaming. They're under you know, intense they, scrutiny in the U.S. and in oh. Europe. Intense. And uh, and this is where I always look. Well, what's the business model? Where, how do they make money? They don't need to use anything more than what they're doing. They have great information. They're telling us, look, we have all these great signals about you. We'd like to use them to make money. Okay? And you don't have to say okay. But if you do, they have plenty. Most people will say okay. And it, I think there's really, the harm is de minimis. So what that Google knows what I search for and then shows me an ad based on it or what email's going on and shows me an ad. Every, Hotmail does that. Everybody does that. That's how you monetize on the Internet. We've gotten a little spoiled. We expect the Internet to be, free. you know, everything's free and cool. We have to do advertisements here. Everything has to be paid for somehow. Uh, I don't collect information about our, uh, our uh, users. We have information in our database about your IP address, but we don't, we don't use that or quantify that. But right. what we do do, uh, actually our advertising agency, Pontract, does, is we looked at what, you, what nations people come from how much time they spend online, what services they use to download. And then we have a survey, which we ask every year. We ask our audience completely voluntarily to fill out. And they do very kindly give us a lot of information about themselves, which is valuable in selling. I think that's the way to do it. Yep. But, uh, I, you know, as long as they're up front, I think that that's all we can ask. They're being, I think, very transparent. I'm glad I asked. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry you asked. Go ahead. No, I no I am because no no I mean it, that's it, my attitude uh, on this. Thing. Several times I had seen this this notice of sixty different services being amalgamated under a single privacy agreement, and I thought, oh, I want to I want to see what Leo thinks about that. So I changed. I'll give you a good example. I changed my Facebook status to single yesterday, 
And I immediately got ads for over 50 singles, lots of them, <laughs> lots of them, dating services for old men. And uh, do you think Facebook now, do you think Facebook knows Leo knows anything about Leo Laporte? They don't. But their their advertising stuff is set up uh, to look. And the minute you ch change, just try it. Change your relationship status. See how it changes your advertising. I changed wow. it back, but, the, uh, but I just was curious. And boy, if I were looking for women over 50, I'm set, buddy. <laughs> I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> okay. On that note, uh, the, the my... My best title for this next little bit of news is Duh. Um, this can't, comes to me thanks to a, a tweeter, Andrew Burns, who tweets as Erebus Bat. Uh, from Birmingham, Alabama, uh, comes a story. Personal 401k retirement plan information from a company called Regions Financial Corp. Current and former employees was lost in November. Now get this. When a flash drive with the data came up missing after being mailed by outside auditor Ernst & Young in the same envelope as the decryption key. They said, at this time, we have no indication that any fraud has occurred due to the situation, Regions said in a letter explaining the data lost to its employees. Birmingham-based Regions informed employees of the missing data in a letter dated January 23rd, so just last week, which the company shared after inquiries by the Birmingham News, who, who is reporting the story. The company also shared a copy of a letter sent to its employees by auditor Ernst & Young, which mailed the package with information about the 401k retirement plan participants to another of its offices with the, with the encrypted flash drive and the decryption key together. When the package arrived, the flash drive was gone, but the page with the decryption key was still there, the company said in their letters. Ernst & Young takes the security and privacy of personal information very seriously, as does Regions. And we deeply regret that this incident occurred, reads the letter from the auditor to the Regions employees. Ernst & Young is taking steps to prevent this issue from recurring, including providing additional training to the Ernst & Young team that works with Regions regarding the proper handling of confidential information. So the lesson here is, I mean, the good news is, they encrypted the information, put it on a flash drive. The bad news is that they sent the decryption key for the flash drive in the same envelope as the flash drive. So, so when the drive was lost in the mail, they have no idea what the circumstances of that loss were how the drive disappeared from the letter, and whether the people who have the drive, this is the flash drive, <laughs> decrypted it with the key that was included it, yeah. with the drive. Just so you know, here's how you unencrypt that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So to anyone who wants to send encrypted information safely through the mail... Send the decryption key separately. Some other way. Even Julius Caesar knew this. 
Oh my goodness! You, you send the messenger separately <laughs> from the from the code. Yep. Uh, Duh. Uh. And in other news, many people tweeted semantic, somewhat embarrassing news of the week, which was that they were semantic doing their due diligence was forced to acknowledge when hackers posted the news of this that six years ago the source code to many of the Norton utilities, including PC Anywhere, was stolen from Symantec <sighs> servers. <laughs> so in in Sam's oh, boy. Sa- Sam's uh, Institute reporting this said Symantec now says that source code that was accessed by cyber intruders puts users of the company's PC Anywhere software at increased risks of attacks. <laughs> Symantec is urging users for whom the software, get this, is not absolutely necessary to disable it until a fix is available. As uh, attackers- Web, Web 3562 says, PC Anywhere is now PC everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, and, it's been obsolete for years. I don't know. I was going to say yeah. it's got a bad. It's had security problems in the past. Yeah. You know, I mean, the and it would always make me nervous if you had something like PC Anywhere with you know an open listening port accepting yeah. connections from any anyone on the internet that gives you access to your machine. That's like just ooh, talk about goosebumps. That's why we. Uh, I hope everybody's using Go to My PC. Yeah, because it uses so it, says, it uses. It, uh, whoa, there it goes. It blew up. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> Did you just sink? We need a visual on this, Leo. <laughs> Boom! <laughs> oh goodness. Uh, For those listening, Leo, before the podcast began. Repressurize the ball I did. that he that he sits on and bounces on. I did. It could explode at any moment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Continuing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Anyway, so so Sands continues. While the Norton products have been updated and therefore do not put users yeah. at risk, PC Anywhere does put users at risk. This contradicts earlier statements Symantec had made that its products were not vulnerable due to the theft. So what happened is bad guys recently posted that they had reverse engineered PC Anywhere from the source code, which had been stolen six years ago, and would now be attacking corporations who were using PC Anywhere. Symantec has verified that the risk is real. So if anybody within within distance of this podcast is using PC Anywhere, stop it. It is, Symantec has confirmed that it is not safe. I don't know whether they will be updating PC Anywhere or they're just simply going to say, we have to formally tell people, stop using it. But at the moment... Semantic has has affirmed that it is not safe, that in fact there were vulnerabilities that could be discerned from the source code, which allow unauthorized 
authentication and login to PC Anywhere, which is about as bad as it gets. So that used to be the king. That program, everybody used it, but I think it's been a while since. I never used it. No. I just yeah. could never be safe. Yeah. Just too too scared. Can't possibly. Couldn't possibly be safe. Two little blurbs from the Twitterverse. Dylan S, who tweets as Nasty Man Nine, said to, he uh. m- mentioned a- at SGGRC that Reaver 1.4 is out, and they renamed Walsh to Wash. So that explained that naming disparity that we had a couple weeks ago when you and I were talking about it, Leo, because I was sure that I had seen it as Walsh, but Wash is the name of the of the pilot of the Serenity Starship in Firefly, and so right. thus, you know, where Reaver came from and also Wash. So somebody had a typo or or believed it was Walsh, which was originally what it was named, and that's the WPS scanner portion of the the reaver utility and then jason b uh had a nice little mention he tweets as alien cg and he said uh he did a pound of spin right saved my gfs so that's short for girlfriend's computer nothing bad found but once she restarted it it worked i just bought it for that purpose so he sent a little note out that he had succeeded um, and since we're doing a Q&A episode this week, I thought I would do a – I would answer a, a listener's Spinrite question. He said – he asks about Spinrite and speech. He said, hi, Steve. First, I wanted to say the podcast is great and has taught me so much. You do such a good job. Also, I was wondering, because Spinrite doesn't use the operating system of a computer, i.e. Windows, Mac, etc., Obviously, screen reading technology for the blind is not going to work. I was wondering if there was or could be a way to get Spinrite talking so people who cannot see the screen can use the program Hmm. as well. Interesting. Thanks for an awesome podcast. I've been very educated from all you've taught. Thanks, A. Smith. And the good news is lots of people through the years have used Spinrite with screen readers, because it is, while it's not a Windows or Mac utility, it is a DOS utility. And it brings a copy of the free DOS OS with it, um, which is MS-DOS compatible, but it also runs atop any of the DOS compatible OSs. So although it's not something we support out of the box, anyone who wants to twiddle a little bit and, and can, for example, if you install it on a USB, which is bootable and, and also because it's USB, it's writable. If you look then at the USB drive, you'll see that there's an auto exec bat file and a config.sys and all the familiar things from DOS world. And you can certainly add a screen reader to it and have it install before Spinrite runs and then get screen reading stuff to work. And I know for a fact that many people have successfully used Spinrite um, now and in the past with screen readers. So it absolutely is uh, compatible with that use. So we have questions. I know you have answers. Uh, yeah. Why don't we uh, take a little break and uh, talk a little bit about our good friends at uh, Carbonite, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on with Q&A. How's that yeah. sound, Mr. G? I like it. All right. Let me uh, close this window here so I can make the switch. 
There we go. And talk about, <laughs> talk about my favorite backup solution, Carbonite Online Backup. It's a good show to talk about backup. I think everybody, of course, who watches a show like Security Now knows about backing up and the importance and urgency of it. Although I gather from all those emails you get from hmm. Spinrite users <laughs> panicked because they didn't have a backup. Uh, that maybe there's a few of you, one or two maybe, who just, you know, you know you should be backing up, but you don't. Or maybe you've got a backup and it failed. You know, that's that's not unusual. And this is why I talk about Carbonite all the time, because it's it may not be your only backup strategy. In fact, it shouldn't be. It should be part of an overall backup disaster plan. But it is a critical part for two reasons. One, it's automatic. And and it's so common that somebody has a backup plan, maybe a backup drive and so forth, and just, you know, doesn't do it. So automatic is very important. The other is it's automatic to the Internet, to the cloud. So it's really safe. Once it's up on the cloud, you could have the worst, you know, earthquake. California could fall into the ocean. And your data would still be safe. You like that, don't you? You may not want it anymore, but your data would still be safe. Automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for all of the files on your internal drive, less than $5 a month. If you have external drives, Carbonite now has plans for that, which I love. Uh, they also have business, Carbonite Pro for business. So you have a lot of different ways you can use Carbonite. But in every case, you can try it for free when you go to Carbonite.com. I think that's really important. We, something what we encourage all of our... Um, uh, advertisers to do is to give you a chance to use something absolutely free. C-A-R-B-O-N-I-T-E dot com. Pick the Carbonite plan you like. Use my name. Actually, our, use our offer code security now, not my name, security now. And you could try it free for at least two weeks. I think the business plan has a month free. And if you decide to buy 14 months for the price of 12, you get two bonus months when you use the offer code security now. It's encrypted SSL, of course, so that means, and that's important because if you put it on a laptop, as a lot of people do, it's perfect for a laptop. You just put it on the laptop. Whenever that laptop's online, it's backing up, but that may well be at a coffee shop, right? Uh, an open access spot. Don't worry. SSL means it's safe. You can also encrypt the data before it leaves, pre-egress encryption or pre-internet encryption, as Steve calls it. So it's encrypted, then travels via SSL to the servers, so it's doubly safe. It is really absolutely the best way to make sure you've always got a copy of your data. And the most affordable. You could shop around. I don't think you'll find a better price anywhere for unlimited online backup. Less than 5 bucks a month, $59 a year, and 14 months for the price of 12 when you use the offer code security now. You've got to back it up to get it back. So do it right with Carbonite. 15 days free, but make sure you use the offer code security now. All right, Steve, uh, let's see. I got a question file right here ready for you. Are you ready to answer? You bet. Let's go to Ottawa for question number one. John Lockman shares his experience with Reaver. Oh, it's going to be one of those Reaver days, I have a feeling. And Actually WPS. not. We, we, didn't, right. we didn't, you know, we, we've, we, we've already had some. Not too much Reaver. Not I run much. Linux as my desktop OS, and my wireless card supports packet injection out of the box, so it was a little work for me to get Reaver running. I did a quick scan of the APs around me and decided to fire attack and against a few. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I didn't. W- <laughs> now that doesn't mean he's doing anything bad. He just wants to see if it works. I, I hope. I didn't want to wait two to ten hours really, uh, and I had no interest in these access points. But well, uh, one I tried returned immediately. 
Apparently, some access points have a hard-coded eight-digit pin, which has been set on purpose. I think that's not unusual. This one had a pin of one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, zero. I'd be shocked if that weren't on purpose. Reaver got it in a single attempt <laughs> and spat up the WPA key for it, too. I wonder if Reaver has been coded to try this and possibly other common keys first. I really hope other vendors are not going to are not going by this practice. This was a device from a large internet service provider in Canada, Rogers. Oh, good old Rogers. So I worry that many other devices may be vulnerable to similar attacks. Disclaimer, of course I own all those access points I may have attempted this on. So, um, well, but that was one of the problems with WPS, wasn't it? Is most pins are hard-coded. What's, well, in, what's interesting this is, is... This is another problem, and I hadn't mentioned it, yeah. but John's point brings it up. It's something that I, I have known about. All of the pins are generally hard-coded. The problem right. is that they're static. It, Believe it or not, Leo, it is the case, and it has come to light, Jeez, that Louise. many routers all use the same one. Just as they do admin-admin for their password and all it, of that. Exactly, but this you can't change. That's really annoying. It's un well, there there's there are several manufacturers that have been identified whose whose wireless access points all use one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, zero. Just that passes the check that passes the checksum. Remember that the eighth digit is not actually free to be whatever it wants to be. It's a checksum. So that's the reason they didn't do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, because that would not pass the checksum, but one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, zero does. So they've used that because, oh, you know, that way they don't have to print custom labels on every router. But, I mean, what this means is that this thing is enabled and has a default has a default pin, which is also static. So, yeah, anyone, <laughs> any, oh. it's probably uh, printed on the it's probably painted on the case. <laughs> but that saves the money, doesn't it? It does. Holy moly. Anyway, wow. of course, I'm sure that was hard-coded into Reaver no, since, since they knew that, that a lot of people use oh, that. Oh, it absolutely is. Yes, yeah. there's a bunch of them that it Try tries. Try that right away. It just, it's, yeah. Yes. It's easy. It's free. <laughs> Question two. John J. Jobst, Columbia, Illinois, provides us some insight from pilots and flight attendants. Oh, I love it. I We have, by the way, a ton of pilots who listen. Um, I read an article that asked questions like, why can't I use my device during takeoff and landing and provided the answers from pilots and flight attendants? In the case of our devices, they're not really worried about electronic interference at all. They're worried about all those three-pound missiles flying out of your hand during a rough landing and hitting someone. Okay, I'll explain why that's bogus. They also don't <laughs> want to be liable for the damages if you simply drop it, and they want you to pay attention to crew instructions should an emergency arise. You can't do that if you have music blasting in your ears or if you're desperately trying to save your spreadsheet before the crash. But rather than explain all this to you, they use FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and say your device can interfere with critical flight systems. You know, I don't buy it because this all started with electronic devices, and they don't say put your Stephen King hardcover novel away. In fact, this encourages you to hold heavy hardcover books instead of a Kindle. True. Which, which would you rather have hitting you? So I don't buy that. I think that they've never had this policy uh, before. They didn't say put your books away. Well, my gripe is that I have always known it's not about interference. So what is it about? I mean, these things do not radiate 
in any significant way. And now that they're turning it into a profit center by allowing you to use your Wi-Fi, you know, by having Wi-Fi on board all the time, it's like now they're demonst- they're admitting yeah. that oh well yeah actually you can use it and I yeah. mean and Wi-Fi is is way emissive right bogus so what do you think it is um, I, I don't know I think it's uh, probably uh, just mis um, misguided yeah that, so it's uh, a policy it's easy for them to say and so it's like well okay you know why should we change this yeah why take a chance is I'm sure their attitude. Yeah. And I don't, I don't blame them. We certainly don't want to bring down a plane because I was reading my Kindle. Um, I wouldn't want yeah. to be the guy, <laughs> that guy. But uh, there, uh, no, there's plenty yeah. of research that shows that there's no interference. So Yeah, all the avionics is so well shielded and so well designed I mean, and, and expensive because of all of the extra care that's been taken to, to shield all of the cables and everything as right. they run around the plane. So I think it's fine to tell people to turn off their cell phone. Uh, for That one I can explain for several reasons. First of all, the cell phone does radiate a lot more. And when you're, as somebody in the chat room says, at 30,000 feet, it's searching like crazy for a signal. So I understand that. And there's nothing more annoying than that jerk. Hey, I'm on the plane! Of course, they sell yeah. their own phone service so people can still do it at great expense. Um, so I understand that, and I hope they continue to force people not to use. In fact, I think they should say, "Turn off your cell phone before you get on the plane." Just say you, you may not use it on the plane at any oh, time. I wish nice. they would do that. But I like to read, and more and more people are going to read on uh, ebook readers, and uh, that's one where you just say, "That's you know." I, I understand. Don't put headphones in. In fact, in Canada, the law is you have to take out your headphones um, of of any kind, and I think that that's a good law. Because mm-hmm. it, during landing and takeoff, because you need to hear instructions if there's an emergency. Uh, so I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with laptops because those are really, if they were flying around the cabin, that would be scary. But what about ebook readers? I've always thought that's, that's you know, that's, and, and more and more people, I would say it's in a year or two, everyone will have an ebook reader in their hand. Yeah. You probably saw the numbers about the number of Kindles yeah. that Amazon sold over Christmas. They still- 177% up from the yeah. prior year. Yeah. Why not? They're great. Yeah. Pat Leonard, Tampa, Florida, wonders about LastPass and a fake SSL cert. Uh-oh. Yeah. Uh-oh. Steve and Leo, while I was listening to record the January 18th, 2012 episode of Security Now, I was logging into my LastPass account. From my school's Wi-Fi. After I logged in, there was an error message saying the security certificate could not be verified by LastPass. When I inspected the cert, thank you so much for explaining that that could be done and how and what it meant. I saw that this cert was coming from my school. Mm. My question is, is it possible that my school could have decrypted my LastPass password if I disallowed use of the cert? Does LastPass use a local copy of stored passwords, or am I or was I in any danger caused by this? I love LastPass. I've been using it since you approved it. I'd hate to think that my school or other organizations are snooping out LastPass master passwords by reissuing certs. Thanks from a listener since episode one. Pat, what's happening here? So, so this is what we've talked about so many times where there is an SSL gateway at his school which is is decrypting encrypted traffic, SSL traffic, in order to provide content filtering. Many businesses do this. Yep. Uh, Opera Mini does this, not for uh, content snooping, but for compression. 
So does the Kindle Fire browser, the Silk browser. This is not uncommon. So the good news is the reason I chose and got fully behind LastPass, and I should mention many people tweet and write and ask if I'm still using it. And the answer is yes, it is. I absolutely depend upon it. So, you know, nothing that nothing that has happened since my analysis and evaluation of it has has in any way diminished my love for this solution. And the reason is that that it does not depend or another reason for that is it does not depend upon SSL security for protection. That is the user's password is hashed in the browser before being sent to LastPass. So the the danger could be, and I haven't thought this all the way through, but I could see if someone at, at the school were malicious, then they could impersonate the user, and that could be a problem. That is, since they're decrypting the, the, the connection between the user's browser and LastPass, they're not going to, they would not be able to get the password, but they would get the hash for the password. And I don't remember whether there's a nonce which is used in the password, and I think there is not, meaning that what I remember is that the username and the password go through some hashing and that those together produce the, the decryption key for the for the for the stored um, library of data, and then that's hashed again in order to produce the hash for the password. And and the beauty of that is that LastPass that ends up receiving all of this never has the ability to decrypt the data. So so what the but what the man in the middle could get would not be the decrypted data but they but they could impersonate the user and i don't think that lets them decrypt i don't think what they were what, what they'd be getting in the wire would ever allow them to decrypt it but it would allow them to log on so there might be some risk there but it it's not it's not huge it's not like all the security of the system collapses um, in the event of this kind of of SSL proxy, but so, they are seeing your I, I, password. So if I, right? I mean, no, if they're no, not not no, not your LastPass password, but the password I log on to Amazon, for instance, using SSL. Are, is it not now going through them? Oh, or? other other passwords, yeah. yes. So they don't and, get and access remember, to LastPass, but they get every password you use during that session. Correct. Oh yes. So it's absolutely the case that you are that in in that school setting you are really having to trust the that the ssl proxy right. what what lastpass does is they hash in the browser using javascript before it goes over the wire right. so it's and secure. remember that yeah so it's like extra secure and remember that we we also talked about the idea of wow that would be a cool way of avoiding SSL proxying man in the middle problems is if the browser hashed the password mm -hmm. rather than just sending it, mm -hmm. you know, rather than trusting SSL for, for its protection. Because unfortunately, as we're seeing, SSL is not necessarily safe any longer. Yeah.
it's, in these it's, sorts of situations. This is a common uh, practice in, in businesses as well. And increasingly common, yeah. probably. Yeah. But you can. Uh, the good news is you can tell because you will get those alerts from a lot of sites saying, hey, the, the, this doesn't match. If you ever get that that warning, the certificates don't match. I've gone to www.gmail.com, yep. and the certificate is not matching. Investigate. Look at the certificate and see. It will tell you. It say, it'll say, oh, Bank of America. <laughs> and you go, oh, <laughs> if you work at Bank of America, oh, they're watching. Yep. yep. But they, they have the right to do that. We should point out every court has said this over and over again. There is no privacy. There's privacy. It's ironic. If you are on the phone and your boss picks up the line and hears you having a personal conversation, the law says he must hang up. He cannot eavesdrop. Yes. yes. If you are using Gmail and he see he can watch everything you say, if you're using instant messenger, every the courts have said again and again, this is not the same. Right. Just so you know. Rob Williams, Sugar Hill, Georgia. I just love the name. Sugar Hill. Had a thought about SOPA. Steve, I'm a long-time listener and a grateful user of SpinRite. It saved my butt by fixing my wife's PC a couple of times now. With SOPA in the news and what it proposes to do with DNS, a thought occurred to me, what would stop a website owner from publishing his site IP address versus its domain name? I mean, DNS translates the domain name to an IP address, right? And that's where the government wants to insert itself, right? So just link to your IP rather than your domain. I, I'm sure... I, I mustn't have a complete understanding here. I, I must be wrong, right? It was just a thought. I enjoy your work with Leo and recommend the podcast all the time, Rob Williams. I'm adding that extra little dramatic, I'm sure I'm wrong here, right? Because, of course, if such a hole were to exist, it would completely make SOPA useless, Steve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So, first of all, the good news is I don't think... Even with the RIAA and the MPAA and all their lobbying clout and, you know, and Chris Dodd's um, sunset oh. provision that prevents him from actively oh. lobbying for two years after he's left Congress. And, you know, that'll be I'm expiring. I'm lobbying. Soon. I'm just uh, talking on CNN. That's <laughs> I'm a all. consultant. I'm a historian. I'm a, yes. Um, okay. I think the notion of the DNS spoofing has been killed forever. So. The DNS sec, the DNS sec argument against spoofing just shoots that one in the head. It, there's just no way we're going to get DNS spoofing to happen because we're. It is so important that we have that we have the security that DNS sec will ultimately be providing us, where we know that our that our DNS has not been spoofed. That this no legislation is going to allow that to be changed so i think dns is safe but this is still an interesting question because it brings up some other things so first of all rob is right for example grc 4.79.142.203 that's grc.com the problem is even i don't really have that very well memorized so you you'd it's not e at all easy of course to memorize ip addresses although well cuz some some dns servers like 8.8.8.8 which easy. is google yeah yeah or 4.4.4.4 .4 .4 .4, which is verizon that used, 
Yeah. Exactly. Those used to be the um, the old level three servers was 4.4.4.1, and so on. Mm-hmm. You know, so they chose those specifically to make them easy to remember because, um, in fact, and what, uh, OpenDNS it has some simple ones too. Yeah, they're, they're not that simple. They're not, they're not as mm, I wish they were simple. simpler because I always forget them. Yeah, but... But so it is the fact that the IP address is difficult to memorize, which is, you know, the reason we have DNS. So it, however, it is definitely the case that using the IP address will get you to the site. And, and also places like Pirate Bay or Mega Upload or so forth where there would be an incentive for writing, you know, looking up and writing down the IP address, that's where people would tend to do it. So you could imagine if somebody had some torrent site that they really liked, it would make sense for them to write down the IP address if there was a threat that at some point they might not be able to look it up using DNS. And and you could imagine also that there would be, people would be, Soon, pushing around in the in the gray zone, lists of of websites and their IP addresses, so that people could use those rather than DNS. Or Just buying another- ads in a magazine, or I mean, there's lots of ways to do that. And yes. I bet you there'd be a pretty brisk market in uh, vanity DNS addresses, like eight 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 eight. Oh, oh, you mean IP addresses? I mean yes. IP addresses. Yeah. Yes. Very good point. Yeah. So, so, so it is the case that just using an IP address does work. It's worth mentioning, however, that DNS does other things than just provide a one-to-one mapping. For example, if you look up the IP address of Google, you get like or, or Microsoft, you don't get one IP. You typically get five or six. And if you look it up again, you get a different one which is to say that every time you look it up, you end up getting a different IP. What DNS servers do is they can do a round-robin rotation so that, so that in general, people looking up the IP address will be spread evenly across a, a, a set of them. And that has the advantage also that if one server has an outage problem, then DNS automatically knows to go to the other, which is why we normally get two IP addresses when, when we look something up, is we have a primary and, and, and a secondary DNS server. Similarly, sites can have multiple IPs if they want, if they want to have like their traffic coming through very different routes to get to them on the Internet. Um, even though they end up resolving to the same DNS name, they they could have very different IPs. So there's more services being being provided by DNS than just mapping to an IP. But it absolutely is the case, Leo, as you say with your sarcasm, which is quite well justified. That <laughs> you know, SOPA was just going to be blocking DNS, but it certainly wasn't going to be blocking people from getting to those things. No. And, and, and and IP would work right. There's all sorts of ways around it. It was a it was a bad uh, solution. Bad Although idea. they're working on other things, they got acting now. They'll 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 find a way. They are not done. But I think you're right. I think they're probably done trying to break DNS. I think it's gonna well. I, and I think 
it, it looks to me like what what one of the pressure points is going to be search engines. Yes. That, you know, so many people get to stuff through search engines. I mean, it is our index to the Internet that that is going to be what they try to attack is say search engines should not return results to, you know, questionable sites. Right. It's like, oh, okay, well, right. good luck with that fight. <laughs> Samuel Lundmark in Sweden wonders about public key strength. He says, I have some thoughts about PKI strength. Uh, we both know that the public and private keys are prime numbers, which are multiplied, and that the strength of the system derives from the difficulty of then factoring the result back into the two primes that composed it. And we know that it takes a lot of computing power to create prime numbers in the first place. Actually, it doesn't, but anyway. Which doubtless slows down the process of testing for prime factors. So why can't someone create a database of all the prime numbers that exist in 20, 1,024 bits? How many would that be? For example, 1357, 11, 13, etc. If someone created a rainbow table of primes, how big would that file be? How vulnerable is PKI to rainbow tables of prime numbers? Steve? Well... It's an interesting idea. Um, when such things I was, do exist. I've seen such things. Yes. Well, yes. And, and the sense we have, it turns out to be erroneous that there aren't many prime numbers. That is, that they're scarce. Um, that, you know, since a prime is by definition divisible only by one and itself... That is, it, it has no other factors. That immediately rules out all even numbers, all numbers that are divisible by three, and, in fact, by all other primes up to itself, of course. And so that says, well, if you eliminate even numbers, you got rid of half. If you eliminate every third number, then you've gotten rid of another two-thirds, or another one-third that you didn't get rid of with the first half. And, of course, you know, anything divisible by five, you've gotten rid of that, and anything divisible by seven and so forth. So intuitively, you think, wow, that must mean that primes are kind of rarefied. Um, it turns out it's not the case. I saw this myself when I was developing the code for that ultra-high, for GRCs, ultra-high entropy random number generator because the algorithm that I used required something called a safe prime, which is a special kind of prime. A safe prime is, is a prime number which you would define as 2 times P plus 1, where P is also prime. And and the converse of that, where that 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 prime p is known as a, is called is called a Sophie Germain prime, and so I needed one, which was, which was, as big as it could be that was just less than two to the twenty one bits. So I needed something that was that was that would fit in a twenty one bit value for this ultra-high random, uh, the, the ultra-high entropy pseudo-random number generator that I developed, which is the technology that underlies the whole behind, uh, the whole off-the-grid system. So I wrote my own, I wrote some code to go find that prime. And it started at one <laughs> and, and spit out safe primes. And 
I watched it just, just spit them out day and night. Do, 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 you know, just kind of marched along. In fact, <laughs> I got tired because there were so many of them that I, I'd start, instead of starting at one, I started up near where I wanted to finish. And I saw firsthand, to my surprise, how many primes there are. Hmm. And in fact, you can imagine lots of number theory has gone into this. And you can do some Googling in Wikipedia and see that, in fact, there's just tons of primes. And 1024 bits is such a ridiculously large number that even if the high bit was always on, then you have 1023 bits of, of combinations. And it turns out that there is just absolutely no, no problem just jumping into the middle somewhere and looking for a prime. Basically, what they do is they do prime number tests. They just they take a number and say, test this to see whether it's prime, uh, which is the, the strategy that I was using. And there's there's lots of research that's been done. It's As you said, Leo, it's not overly compute intensive to, to find primes. Uh, but the other side is there are way too many of them to build a rainbow table. That is, I mean, you can and you just you'll never stop you well know, and it wouldn't solve it wouldn't job. really solve the problem either because would it because uh don't we we need two primes we what we need is two primes multiplied together to give a larger number and just because you had a rainbow table of primes doesn't mean it'd be easier to factor that larger number would it the issue the issue is what what makes it hard is factoring a very very large number into two primes the product of two primes into two primes so what you need is a rainbow table not of primes but a rainbow table of numbers created by two primes multiplied together that would be vast well what you could do if you had the the, the original um, rainbow table, I guess you could in fact multiply them all together, right? Well, and if you had the product of the two primes, yeah, then you Just would take divide. a value from the rainbow table, right. divide it by that, and see if you get a prime out. Okay, so that would be that. That would be the approach you could in take. In fact, but, that's probably the brute force attack. That's why, but exactly, that takes a long time. <laughs> exactly. Right. That's the point. <laughs> and 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 if if there were not that many primes, unquote, then it would work. But the fact is, there are just, <clears throat> a, just there's no limit. Well, there's a limit, but it's a huge, huge number. Right. And, and I mean, which is counterintuitive. You would think that with, you know, since the definition is it can't be divisible by all those other numbers down below it, and it's up there so high, it turns out there's just still a gazillion of them up there. Uh, yeah. That's the issue. There's just so many of them. Yep. Andre Kassiram in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada, wonders about check disk and defrag. Steve, I just finished listening to 336, a Q&A episode, our previous Q&A episode, as a matter of fact. And a question popped into my head about hard drives. I've been using computers since MS-DOS when I developed a habit of performing a disk error scan, a check disk scan, and defrag at the beginning of every month. I started doing this to minimize disk errors and reduce the chance of disk failure. Probably just increased it, but that's all right. While I've increased, while I've experienced a, a hard disk failure, they have been few and far between. I suspect it's because of this habit. I'd like your opinion on this habit and whether there's any need to continue with my perceived preventative measure. Also, I've heard that solid-state drives do not require defragging. This may actually harm the drive. Why is that? I'd like to close by complimenting you and Leo on your excellent podcast, regular user, no computer security. 
credentials. I find your friendly, understandable style a real joy. Blah, blah, blah. Keep up the good work. Accents. Blah, blah. Stephen Leo, <laughs> thanks for all you do. I, I, I skip through that stuff. All yep, the praise, I, I blush. Um, I'm, I sometimes want to cut it out, but I think, well, you know, then I'm not really posting the question. So, well, like, no, yeah, I'm, but it's, it's okay. nice. But anyway, okay. um, that is so, great. I've wanted to ask you this for ages. It is, I would call running a check disc and a defrag a poor man spin right. Yeah. It actually is useful. Remember that, and the reason he was put in mind of this is it was two weeks ago that I that I explained what it was that Spinrite does in answer to one of our listeners' questions who said, you know, you keep talking about it, but you never talk about what it actually does. The value is in making the drive read its own data because that's when it discovers that it's got problems with a sector. It doesn't know unless it tries to read it that it's got a problem. And Error correction is employed all the time now because there are it just the densities are so high the drives are depending upon it. It's when the problem gets near the point when it might not be able to correct it if it gets any worse that it then says, "Ooh, relocates it to a good spot and and marks that sector bad." So the fact is, if you if you did a check disk which thrashes around the drive and reads the, the, the metadata, you know, the file system data, um, and a defrag, which has the, has the effect of pretty much moving everything around by visiting everywhere, picking stuff up and moving it. I call that a poor man's spin write because you are essentially telling your, your drive to read pretty much all of the disk and and write it back down again <laughs> you're trying to so, break it basically yeah and but so doesn't it, it now i'd be honest I, you know i i've uh, people often uh talk about defrag and on modern uh, operating systems defrag doesn't have any real purpose and i can and doesn't it thrash the drive i mean aren't you really thrashing the drive in that case defrag yeah. is different from check disk or spin right where you read, write, rewrite, or maybe don't write, just read, 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 read. Defrag's moving stuff around like crazy. It's doing a lot of drive access. Yeah, I, I'm I'm not a big fan of defragging any longer. You don't for need exactly it anymore. That reason. Yeah. And and to answer Andre's question about why SSDs should not be defragged, and he is correct. It, remember that SSDs, first of all, being non-physical, there's absolutely no wear and tear if if files become fragmented that is arguably if you had a really badly fragmented hard drive then and you were reading those fragmented files then it is more work for that drive to have its head jumping all over the place following the path of the of a single file which has been fragmented than if it were defragged and the head was able to stay in one place and just slowly click along through cylinders as it reads a long file. So SSDs don't have that problem being completely solid state. The, they do have the problem that they are fatigued by writing. So you do not want to defrag, exactly as you said, Leo, an SSD. Not only does it, is there zero benefit, but it is actually detrimental because they don't like to be written. And they're random access, so it's optimization yes. doesn't make any sense. Correct. It's a meaningless um, idea. 
It is the case, however, that running a Spinrite Level 1 pass over an SSD is good for it. Oh, this is good to know. We, this yes. is new information. Tell us about that. This is that. new inf I have never said that before. Yeah. But in, in, in reading Andre's note and thinking about it, I thought, oh, and thinking about what I said two weeks ago, SSDs also have error correction. SSDs, as we know, develop problems over mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And just like with a hard drive, you need to read the data from the SSD in order to show it that it has a problem. So Spinrite's level one is a read-only scan. And you and doing that on an SSD makes a lot of sense. Do a do a read-only scan of an SSD. It'll show the SSD's controller that it's got a problem reading a sector, and then it'll map that out or rewrite it in order to strengthen that sector if possible. So that ends up being a use of value for Spinrite on solid-state drives. Yeah. And the reason solid-state drives wear out is writes, not reads, right? You can read it indefinitely. It's just the writes yes. that are a problem. It's because the, the, way, the technology is a, is, a, is a small conductor which carries an electrostatic charge. So there's like electrons stranded out on this little conductive island. And the... The technology is able to sense the charge so that you're able to sense the charge without doing any work. But in order to drain the charge, since this little island, this little floating island of, of, of conductive material with electrons, you need to break down the insulative barrier. Ah. And you use high voltage to do that. There's actually a, a, what's called a charge pump in SSDs where they actually pump themselves up to a much greater voltage than the 5 volts they run on hmm. and then they use that voltage to break through and 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 break essentially break the 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 resistance of this barrier break the insulation and pull the electrons off when they want to set it to zero and similarly, they break through it to, pu to push electrons on. Well, what, that, what happens is that's the problem, is over time, breaking through that, that insulation fatigues the insulation and it starts leaking a little bit. And so the SSD will detect it and go, whoops, we've got a problem. And that's where it's, it'll, it'll take that out of service and map in some spare space. So it's the writing that is, it does fatigue the actual storage mechanism of the SSD, right. which is not a problem that hard drives have. Right. Tom Walker, Littleton, Colorado, uh, wants to know uh, about the WPS button, button. I listened to the entire show, by the way, Steve, great podcast. Listen to the entire show about the WPS pin vulnerability. Seems to me... Uh, this vulnerability would be present only on routers that don't have a button but still have WPS. Isn't the purpose of the button to temporarily turn on WPS? How can a hacker in the apartment next door hack my WPS pin if he can't press the button to enable the two-minute WPS access? That's a good uh, point, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful oh. if that were so? Oh. I only addressed one aspect of WPS 
when we've been talking about it, which was the reaver-oriented uh, pin hacking remote exploit. There are, in the WPS spec, a number of other ways for WPS to work. There's, there's actually already a near-field technology defined for WPS, where, for example, at some point in the future, when our, when our smartphones have near-field technology in them, my, my new uh, BlackBerry Bold does, um, and when our access points have near-field technology, you'll literally be able to just knock your phone against a spot on the access point and instantly configure its Wi-Fi. That's in the spec already. There is also and what they call out-of-band synchronization, for example, using um, USB, where you would, you would briefly connect your device through USB, and th- there's, there's a WPS support for USB protocol to send the information through the USB channel. So it's not going through the air. That's another means of configuring WPS already in the spec, just waiting for somebody to use it. The fourth approach, skipping the the, the WPS approach we now know of, the, the fixed pin approach, um, the fourth approach is the push button approach. And that works without a pin. So it, it isn't that it enables the pin. It is pin-free which makes it <laughs> troubling for a whole another set of reasons. But you're only vulnerable for two minutes. Yes. So the idea there is you press the button on the router and you walk over. Remember I talked, I did, I did mention it briefly. They call it the walk time. You then walk to the device you want to configure and you press its button or its equivalent. And both devices then are supposed to to see each other and automatically synchronize themselves, automatically pair, but only if neither of them sees anybody else. And so that's the protection against... Oh, that's clever. It is clever. And it's like still gives me the creeps because it's like, oh, that doesn't seem very safe. You know, so yes, just disable WPS if you can. Oh, and I should mention, Cisco has provided an update to all of their Linksys owners, not not firmware, but news of <laughs> when that will happen. Yeah. Sometime yeah. in March. They it's uh, ID two five one five four on the Cisco uh uh knowledge base and they say the first firmware will be to disable WPS. <laughs> not to fix it, just to disable it. And they say there is a workaround. You can disable Wi Fi. <laughs> so do, do they really? Yeah. Workarounds. Oh, it says not oh. all workarounds are available yeah. or practical for all customers. It. Just just pull yeah. the plug. Leo. It says disable wireless radio. For customers not <laughs> using the wireless function, disabling the Wi Fi radio will alleviate exposure. Well, that's a good point, I guess. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Moving along. True enough. True enough. And don't let anybody press the button. Don't let any strangers yeah. come into your house and press, and press the, button. the button and then leave. And then yeah, walk away. That would be good. That'd be bad, too. Thomas Paulson in Nordland, Norway asks, so, is WPA pr- cracked? Stephen Leo, longtime listener of Security Now, I regard your expertise as my one-stop shop of all things security-related. 
I'm sure you get a ton of email, if email has weight, about cracking this and that. I'll try to make this brief, interesting, and to the point. In online forums, I hear a lot of people claim, greatly convinced that WPA and WPA2 have been cracked and are insecure, but I haven't had anyone produce any convincing evidence. I searched the net, couldn't find any reliable resources. Searched YouTube, found a lot of videos showing how they supposedly cracked WPA by using a few Linux commands, but a video is easily faked. I, I remember 170, November 2008, where the TKIP hack was dissected. Since then, I've not heard anything about WPA, in fact, being cracked. Did I miss it? Are people wrong in assuming the WPA, WPA2 is vulnerable, cracked? I mean, as far as I know, the only way to crack my WPA2 secured Wi-Fi network would be a brute force attack which would take just about forever, giving a passphrase of significant size. I ran mine through your password haystacks. And even in the massive cracking array scenario, it would take 1.91 million trillion centuries. I'm sorry, underestimated it. 1.91 million trillion (laughs) trillion centuries to guess. (laughs) If it's broke, I would think the Internet would be swamped with news stories. And high-profile security experts says you're such as yourself confirming the fact, but I don't see that. And I won't believe it till I hear it from you. Thanks for... Creating the wonderful show. If my life were limited to a single podcast, it would be security now. Best regards, Thomas Paulson, Norway. You know, I put this, I saw this, and I wanted to include it because I see the same nonsense. Again and again. I know in forums, and I saw it in the last couple of weeks when I was doing research on the WPS stuff, is, you know, these anonymous weenies who, who... I guess impressed their family members. I, I cracked with, it. <laughs> yeah, with their supposed knowledge. And they just sit back there and say, oh, WPA's been cracked. You know, ha, ha, ha. That's what it really Good is. It's, it's kind of this know-it-all thing. Oh, yeah, no, I know that. Yeah. I read and that in an so, article once. <laughs> well, so Thomas and everybody else, nothing has changed. WPA and WPA2 have not been cracked. The only little chink in the armor of WPA was exactly as Thomas remembers, which was that the the TKIP, the Temporal Key Integrity Protocol, was was eh, it was very cleverly jimmied a little bit by some developers who figured out that they could decrypt very short packets only of the sort that maybe the ARP protocol would use. Um, nothing further ever came of it. It, it. You you can't do more with it than that. You can't decrypt large packets. Um, th- there just isn't really any practical way to leverage that. And WPA2, which uses the advanced encryption standard, the AES, um, is absolutely, exactly as Thomas says, uncrackable the only known exploit is the going through the front door with a brute force attack and trying exhaustively every possible passphrase until you know on it on on a on a packet that, that you captured in the air and so it is not the case that WPA and WPA2 have been cracked despite what you see posted by weenies in forums <laughs> So, in fact, we say uh, if you want to secure a wireless router, make it as secure as anything wired. Use WPA2, right, AES, 
And the only known problem is if you'd made a, if you used a, a really password. dumb yeah. password. Don't use yes. one, two, three, four, five, six, seven as your password. Do not. And if you have WPS, turn that off. Nathan Agius, because by the right, because WPA, I mean WPS will bypass the WPA passwords no matter how. Right. right. The, the, what was so, what was so clever about WPA was that it still used the RC4 cipher. Right. And RC4 is itself not insecure. It was that the WEP WEP right. implementation of it was so poor that there were all kinds of ways to to crack it. So the but the problem was back then when we were trying to get away from WEP as fast as possible, there was a lot of old hardware right. that could, wasn't strong enough to handle a, a much more powerful cipher. So they used this temporal key integrity protocol, basically came up with a clever way of reusing RC4 and solving the WEP problems, but, but still giving us really good strength. So that was a long time ago. Now in this day and age, everything supports WPA2. So as you said, Leo, disable WPA, everything should work just fine. Nathan Agius in Sydney, Australia, is looking for an alternative to GoDaddy. Hi, Stephen Leo. After recently listening to you and Leo complaining about GoDaddy multiple times and the fact GoDaddy was in support of SOPA, I decided to move away from them. I signed up with Hover. Good. That's one of our sponsors for some domains. And I want to move my main ones away soon. The problem is I'm using GoDaddy's hosting on two sites, and I don't feel comfortable with just picking a new hosting company randomly. Do you have any advice my first thought was to go with Twit sponsor Squarespace, but unfortunately, they do not allow server-side code in PHP to be uploaded by me. Can you suggest? That's I'm not surprised. Can you suggest any Linux-based hosting with PHP support? Thanks for time and uh, your time and a great show. P.S. For years now, I've been swapping the contents of all my drives onto new media and back every six months due to bit rot. You woke me up to this years ago. Great advice. That's an interesting. I never heard of that. Did you recommend that? Swapping, no. it, but that's a good idea. It is. I mean, you could also run Spinrite, or yeah, you could same idea. You know, some just do something that reads the drive. That's right. you know, reading the drive show allows it to see it's got problems. Do you have? I mean, you use Power Hosting. You do your own hosting through Level One, right, or something like that. What do you do? Yeah, well, I've got my own servers at level right. three, level three, um, and level, one, you know, level three, and, yes. and all, all of my server side stuff, of course, <clears throat> is in assembly language, right. Uh, but I didn't know if you had somebody, but I would say DreamHost is a really strong hosting provider. And, I mean, they're a, they're a, a real propeller head uh, provider. They do, and I checked, allow you to do your own server-side PHP 5 stuff. Um, and they've got great packages. They've been around forever, and they give you a, a whole bunch of different plans and you know access to essentially virtual private servers running Linux or other OSs of your choice. So if nothing else, DreamHost, but uh, maybe somebody in the chat room has a recommendation, or I thought maybe you might. Yeah, I like DreamHost fine. Um, yeah, they did get hacked recently, but <laughs> so we talked about we talked about it last week. Everybody found, does. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, and they were they were as responsible about it as they could have been. Right. I mean, the truth is that's why Squarespace doesn't allow you to upload sideload uh, PHP code. When we've been hacked, we've been hacked what two or three times at Twit, and it was always PHP code. Uh, that that is a that is kind of inherently risky. You have to know what you're doing if you're writing PHP code and uploading it. Um, we use a company called Softlayer, 
for our hosting. And basically, it's dedicated. I mean, we use it as a dedicated server hosting. So in other words, uh, that server is all ours. We have six of them. Uh, we have, you know, a, a MySQL server. We have it divided up. Much like what you would do yourself, Steve, you have your own hardware running in your own area with bandwidth provided by Level 3. We just, our hardware, we don't own. We lease it from them, and it's in their cages in Dallas and Seattle. We like the fact that it's multiple locations. We like the yep. fact that they have gigabit and 100 megabit connections to the outside world better than we've got. Um, so, I mean, I, don't have, I couldn't afford a gigabit connection. Um, here we have 150 megabits, but I'm not going to use that for servers. So we we just do it as software, and they're fairly affordable, and I think they're good. They, I believe, now so one thing to describe uh, and maybe have people understand: there's managed and unmanaged hosting. Uh, ours is yes. unmanaged, which means we have our own sysadmins. They're responsible for security and maintaining it. Uh, software doesn't look over our shoulder. They basically give you a box with a connection and say it's all yours. Do whatever you want. Um, there's for some people. That is not what they need. They need more hand-holding. They might want somebody to manage it at various degrees. I, I'm i pretty sure you can get managed hosting as well from uh, SoftLayer at a price. DreamHost is, I'm sure, managed. Uh, it's rare that you'll find a hosting server that, that's, unless you have a dedicated host, let dedicated server, rather, that will say, right. hey, do whatever you want. Because you're on the same box as a bunch of other people. So um, I'm sure DreamHost is managed. And for most people, that's what you want. Yeah. Peter McDonald in Scotland. And I do, love, by the way, no hesitation. Hmm. If you want a good uh, company, I love SoftLayer. We put we don't get a deal with them. We pay full price. We pay thousands, I think four or five thousand a month in the server costs. But they are great and they've been very responsive whenever there's a problem. And I've been very happy with uh, SoftLayer.com. Peter McDonald in Scotland shares his thoughts about self updating routers. In Security Now 336, you said it was a shame that routers don't or in Scotland they probably call them routers, don't automatically update their firmware. I work for a major UK ISP who supply rebranded Thompson and two-wire routers to their customers. Both of these routers do, in fact, automatically update their firmware. When they're plugged in for the first time, they register with the network on the ISP side. When new firmware is released, a batch of routers are upgraded to ensure that if there's not an issue... If there is an issue, rather, not all are affected. Once it's been proven there are no issues, the rest of the routers get updated in large batches. Granted, these are routers with customized firmware on them written by the router manufacturer to our, the ISP's, specification. But there's no reason why they couldn't do the same for public routers. There are two issues, issues, however. First, how do you handle a bricked router? If there are any issues during a firmware upgrade, or upgrade, the router could become unusable. If the consumer did not know of the upgrade, they may just think it malfunctioned and start rebooting midway through the upgrade. There's one way you could brick it. Secondly, some customers, and I think that's probably the best reason, because during a firmware upgrade, the router will not be working. And if you rebooted it then, disaster. Secondly, some customers really do not like the device updating itself. What can and does happen a lot is the new firmware will break some functionality. It hasn't been fully tested. This results in dissatisfaction and complaints from the company. This uh, happened recently at my work where a firmware upgrade stopped IPsec VPNs from working. Ouch. Well, there there is, I think, probably in the future, we're going to see um, routers, routers, whatever you want to call, call them. It's funny because, it, you know, you don't call them routers in Australia because if you did, it would be dirty. Yeah. <laughs> but we call them routers in the States, and I know in the UK they call them routers. So just so you know. I think we've there covered is, both pronunciations by saying so. 
there is long-standing technology for embedded systems uh, where you have something called a watchdog. Right. And the watchdog is a is a hardware timer, which which if the router is working correctly, in one of the router's execution loops, every so often it goes and resets this timer, so that the timer is never allowed to expire. And if the if the timer ever expires, that tells it that there's a that there's a hang somewhere, and so. In embedded systems, it'll reboot the device in order to wake it up and pull it out of this hang. So it's entirely possible to to imagine a router which would be even safe, could be made safe against this kind of vulnerability. That is the problem of uh, like being reset in the middle of a firmware update or something by by giving a watchdog timer the ability to re-flash the firmware from a master copy in ROM. So there would always be a good known fallback firmware that the router could come back to if in the process of getting itself updated, um, something happened or, you know, or, or the, um, uh, the new firmware, you know, was properly flashed, but then ended up having a problem and, and, and the user said, whoops, you know, just press a button in order, in order to fix the router. So you can imagine workarounds. Uh, maybe it'll never happen. Routers are so inexpensive. No one wants to add the additional cost. But, you know, we, are, we sure are seeing a situation here where it would be nice to have some means of reaching out and updating. God knows how many wireless routers have this WPS vulnerability that's just going to be there forever. Yeah. Sigh. Rick yeah. Hubner in uh, Melbourne, Florida, shares some tips for using TrueCrypt. Steve, in uh, Security Now number one, I'm sorry, 337, you mentioned the person accused of mortgage fraud and being compelled to provide their password to decrypt their laptop. I am an avid user of TrueCrypt, and I have my laptop drives whole disk encrypted for several years now. TrueCrypt has offered the option of replacing their boot time display text with your own text. This is limited to something like 30 characters, but I found the best prompt. Instead of that glaring TrueCrypt prompt was to put in something like missing ntoskernel.exe or just a blank screen. This gives the impression the hard drive's dead and tends to provoke a compassionate response <laughs> instead of an adversarial response to an encrypted drive. I mean, come on. Who sees a safe and wonders or doesn't wonder how much cash and drugs are stored in it? Remember Scarface? I think this combined with either encrypted virtual machines or the hidden volume operating system should provide enough deniability for all but the super spy. I really, I, I like Rick's thought and it's actually mimics what I have done in the past. My feeling is you really gain nothing if your boot up screen say, says, nanny, 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 <laughs> you can't guess my can't password. <laughs> you know, it's just going to piss off somebody. And, you know, induce them to try or maybe they'll just throw the machine down on the ground because they're upset or something. I really I much more uh, appreciate sort of the Aikido approach of just sort of saying exactly as he suggests, something to indicate that the system is not functioning. And, you know, like like missing NTOS kernel or, you know, uh, missing operating system just say missing operating system lord knows that's the horrible message we see sometimes when we're configuring systems and and the bios tries to boot from the wrong drive or we leave a usb dongle in and the bios tries to boot from that 
And so, I mean, it would stop somebody so that they wouldn't even go any further. Now, it would not stop the FBI because anyone forensically looking at the boot sector would immediately recognize that this is a true crypt boot sector, which has been configured to display this message. So up at the high level, it's not going to stop anybody. But I do. I really, I loved him saying it, you know, provokes a compassionate response rather than one that's adversarial. And I say, why not go for that? Do not taunt somebody who you're trying to keep out of your drive. That just, that's just never going to have any benefit. Finally, our last question from Andres Strauss in Centurion, South Africa. He uh, is wondering about cooling down phone batteries. Steve, you've shared a lot regarding phone batteries lately, which is always very interesting. I'd like to know, is it okay to mount my iPhone on the air vent of my car's air conditioner? The, the issue is I use my iPhone as a GPS device while driving, and I have it mounted on a suction cup cradle, leaving it exposed to direct sunlight. It's also charging while in the car. After a while, the screen goes darker, making it difficult to see the route. This, I found, was because of the phone heating up. Uh, I then have to remove the phone from the cradle and cool it down by holding it directly in the airflow of the air conditioning. Not exactly the safest operation while driving. The other option is to set the air conditioner to blow air from below the front windshield so more cool air reaches the phone, but not me. I've seen various types of cradles which will allow you to mount the phone directly on the air vent grill. Is this a good uh, idea, though, to have the phone permanently directly in cool air? It is a fantastic idea. Couldn't wait. And well, No, actually, more than that, Leo, one thing in all of our discussion that I also have meant to say, but it kept slipping my mind, is temperature. Uh, Lithium-ion batteries hate the heat. It is... It is absolutely destructive to them to the degree that, that, that mature technology, responsible technology, will not have anything to do with a hot lithium-ion battery. It will absolutely shut down. It won't charge. It won't discharge. It'll just say, we're not doing anything until this battery cools off. It is crucial that lithium-ion batteries not be allowed to get too hot. And so, and it's something that I had forgotten to mention, but in, term, in terms of our general sort of ongoing uh, series on uh, care and feeding of, of contemporary lithium-ion battery technology, temperature really matters. So, for example, do not leave devices sitting on your car dashboard. Um, you know, obviously it's not good anyway because bad guys can see them and that gives them an incentive to, to break a window and, and reach in and get it. But you do not want them to heat up. It will age the battery very quickly. So absolutely keep things out of direct sunlight because that allows them to get very hot and they don't like it. <laughs> and, yeah, sunlight's bad. In fact, the iPhone has a warning, which I have seen that will pop up, it will actually shut down and say it's overheated and it will stop. Working. And I've had that with my iPad as well, right. yes. So, yeah, you definitely don't want to overheat that. And, hey, think about all the computers that for years sat in air-conditioned, uh, sealed chambers. That's what they well, want. It's, it's, yeah, and but even more so, chemistry wants that. Right. I mean, our, our batteries are goo-filled. They've got all this chemistry going on in there, and it's that chemistry that really is heat-sensitive. Right. 
Steve Gibson is not heat sensitive, <laughs> but he's liable to strip down if it gets too warm. He is. He is our. Hey, I've done this podcast <laughs> with a fever, Leo. I, I, uh, yes, you know what? Uh, let's give you some credit. Last week, Steve was walking wounded, and he did not indicate in any way that he was in pain. I guess he got some food poisoning or something. I had a 101-degree fever. I took my temperature afterwards. And wow. I thought, whoa, okay, wow. well, the wow. podcast must go on. I'm impressed. In future, please do not do not do that. Just tell me. We'll reschedule. Anyway, thank you for letting us re reschedule. We did this show a little bit earlier. Normally, we do it uh, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern at twit.tv. But you know what? We make sure that you can get it in any way you want. You can watch it on Roku. You can watch it on uh, many devices. You can download video from iTunes or just from our site, twit.tv. And Steve even offers, I don't know, how many downloads? Do you have counts of downloads for 16 kilobit versions? Oh, yeah. I haven't looked at them for a long time, but we get thousands of thousands. downloads. Thousands. Wow. And I bounce them through PodTrack so that Thank PodTrack's we get, we count them. them too. But yep. for those of you who really want a small file, I mean, 16 kilobit is about as small as you can get and still have audio. There is a text transcript as well, which is even smaller. All of that, the 16, the, the bandwidth impaired stuff you'll find at grc.com, Steve's site. A great place, too, if you want a question on our next Q&A episode to go, grc.com slash feedback. Um, there's lots of free stuff at grc.com, too, you might want to check out. But, of course, let's not forget SpinRight, the world's best hard drive. And now solid-state drive maintenance and recovery utility. Couldn't do any recovery on there, probably. But you could exercise it in a safe yeah, way. Uh, I would imagine some future version will, really? will be my... Oh, yeah. Uh, we're not done. Good on you. Yeah, because I, I, mean, I don't want solid-state to put Steve Gibson out of business. That would be bad. Nope. I don't think that'll happen. All right, Steve. Well, I'm glad you're feeling better. Don't eat at that place ever again. Nope, I'm not going back. <laughs> Thanks, Steve. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security now.